Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf in New York City. Joining us for this broadcast, we have... Tom Ricks, where are you, actually? In rural Maine. In rural Maine, we have Tom Ricks, the author of Churchill and Orwell. Uh, In Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have David Sanger of the New York Times, about to go teach his class at Harvard's Kennedy School. In Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, who has just completed her lunch. And in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. So we've got a great group of people here to talk about what's going on and foreign policy from the only official podcast of America's Deep State. Tom, from your perspective in rural Maine, you undoubtedly watched the UN unfold last week, you saw the uh, Twitter activity in the United States, and I thought of your book as I was watching all of this, because you write about two people who, despite the differences between Churchill and Orwell, both were known as truth-tellers, and both came together on the side of fighting for the ability to speak the truth and against authoritarianism at a critical moment in the history of England and the world. And I'm just wondering, having written the book, having spent the past several months going out there talking about the book, how the the daily news that we see resonates with you? It feels a lot to me like the 1930s, uh, generally in the sense of the 30s being a time of political turmoil, uh, both domestically and abroad, but more specifically in the very specific sense that Orwell so objected to of opinion being privileged over fact. Um, What I see today on the left, but mainly on the right in America, is this sense that it doesn't matter what the facts are, I know what my opinion is. That reminds me a lot of the old doctrinaire Communist Party, were under party discipline. Anything that was good for the Communist Party was itself considered morally good. So if lying helped the Communist Party, lying was good. And I feel that's where we are now with President Trump and his followers. Um, Corey, I'm sure you were heartened by the fact that Tom took us back as far as the 1930s. Is that the decade you think of when you think of the news of the past week? Uh, so I'm a huge Tom Ricks fan, so I second any motion he puts on the board. But the two periods of time 
that strike me as most similar to the present are the 1820s and the late 1880s, because in both of those periods of time, you had enormous economic upheaval that created populism and turbulence in our American politics, because nobody had a good answer to to the emerging to the political upheaval of the emerging economic order. And so we fumbled around for three or four elections until somebody finally found the mix of social programs and opportunity and education and inclusiveness that calmed politics down. So so I'm not quite, I guess, I have reclaimed the rhinestone tier of optimism because I'm not in quite as dark a place as Thomas. Um, well, oh, I'm sorry. One more thing I want to pile onto this, which is that I agree that the U.S. is clearly failing in its leadership role of the international order. But one of the things that feels different to me from the 1930s is the way that other states are stepping forward into roles that help preserve the liberal order while the United States, to give the United States the space to come to our senses, right? So that our Asian allies and friends are continuing the Trans-Pacific Trade, par Trade Partnership even without us under the leadership of Australia and Japan because it's so self-evidently good for us all that they're buying us time to come to our senses. And I think we see a fair amount of that. I think we see it by the European Union in some context. Um, and that's a really wonderful thing. And there wasn't that stepping forward as the U.S. falters that we saw in the 1930s. David, there is, of course, a rich irony in what Corey was getting at, because the one country that seems to be doing the most of stepping in for us uh, in this 1930s-like period uh, as the champion of the liberal order and values-based leadership is Germany. Uh, and yet Germany has just gone through an election, and I was just wondering what your take was on that. Well, before I go to the Germans, let me say that while I would never disagree with Tom, and I'd certainly never disagree with Corey, um, I would give us a different period that we would look at. I would say just at the the turn of the century, the you know, early 1900s period, where America was at once a bit isolationist. I mean, think about all of the uh, fears that they had of Chinese immigration and so forth and so on, and at the same time was lashing out to sort of show American power. This was the time period when, of course, we grabbed the Philippines and Cuba, you know, everything that came out of the Spanish-American War, and we had later on um, Teddy Roosevelt up on the bully pulpit uh, flexing his muscles at the same moment everybody was saying, do we really want to be a global power? And you see this same kind of back and forth uh, in Washington every single day, where on the one hand you hear, we don't want to be in constant conflicts anymore. And on the other hand, you have the president tweeting out, uh, as he did uh, uh, recently, that if he got more threats from North Korea, uh, there wouldn't be a country anymore. Uh, their country, not ours. So um, that's the period of time that it, it sort of reminds uh, me of most. Um, Germany. So 
The most interesting thing about this election, to my mind, is not that Burkle got reelected. We all knew that was going to come. Uh, but that for the first time, the German parliament, which had always sort of leaned slightly left of center and sometimes well left of center, now, if you add it all up, is slightly right of center. And I can't think of another time in the post-war period when that's been the case. And tells you a little bit about how the Germans have reacted to the chaos they've seen around them. Uh, Rosa, I, I, apparently I can, nobody can resist throwing in their favorite decade. And so I want to I want to give you a chance to David. Uh, to, I love all decades equally, and I think they, I think they all have their grim aspect. But but I think I'm going to go. This with is Tom. the future liberal wants. Rosa likes everybody. Yeah, I, I do, and all decades get a gold star. Um, but but I'm going to give an extra gold star to the 30s for grimness, and 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 side with Tom on this. I you know. While I uh, I have a few rhinestones left, and and I think it is it is quite possible that things don't get as apocalyptic as they might. Uh, I also think it is quite possible that they will, for all the reasons Tom has articulated. But but you always do, Rosa. I do. I know that's true. Good point. But, but I'm. But do you but, like? Are you able to sleep at night? I sleep very well <laughs> because it, you, have, you have low expectations of life. You're always being pleasantly surprised. But no, I mean, in general, as 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 you all know, in general, I think that we underestimate the the possibility of various kinds of existential and apocalyptic threats. And I felt this way even before the phenomenon known as Donald Trump uh, burst onto the scene, uh, onto the national political scene. Um, and I think that the the Trump phenomenon merely dramatically, the Trump and related phenomena, obviously, because he is a a product as much as a cause of. Uh, the rise in sort of extremist groups and so forth. Um, but I think that, you know, it now just increases the likelihood of all kinds of, of fascinating apocalypses. Well, Tom, you brought up the 30s, and it's kind of interesting, uh, as David pointed out, uh, the uh, interestingly named alternative for Germany uh, right-wing party has picked up something like 89, 87 seats in the, in, in the Bundestag. And uh, and so that's the first time they've been there really since the the far right party has been there since the end of the Second World War. And Angela Merkel won the smallest margin that the Christian Democrats have won since like 1949. So, you know, this uh, uh, set of developments, while it's glad, you know, we're glad that we still have the leader of the free world around in, in Angela Merkel, that there is a shift in Germany that one might consider to be Trump word, uh, as David uh, uh, was hinting at. Uh, and you, one wonders if, if you know, Trump is the big problem we have, or there's an underlying impulse, you know, in, 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 in Europe, and we've obviously seen Farage and some of these others, uh, the United States and elsewhere towards um, towards this this darker world that you described do you do see it as part of a bigger trend uh globally is oh, that absolutely. part of the absolutely trump trump is a mere pimple on the buttocks of history um trump is a manifestation of, of a much larger problem which i see as uh, a large part of these countries rightly see themselves betrayed by elites uh, and I don't see why the elites, as in Trump's cabinet, are getting away with it, but they are. 
basically for the last 30 years, the working people, the middle class of this country, as well as the working class of this country, have been getting screwed by the top 1%. The system no longer works for them, and I think that's true in many other countries right now, and people sense it. Now, it's not just economic, uh, but I think the largest, the prime cause is economic, and it manifests itself in a variety of ways, sometimes in populism, sometimes in racism, sometimes in nationalism. But I think people are feeling like the system isn't working for them, and so they want to tear down at least part of the system. I think there's a very rational process going on here, but it's resulting in irrational answers and solutions and choices. Now, Corey, Rosa, David, I'm not really sure who to go with following this because you're all really elites. Which one of you is the least elite? Oh, definitely me. No, I'm I'm very unelite. Oh, yeah, really. Yeah, he's the least elite. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the establishment newspaper guy teaching at Harvard. He's the anti-elite. Yeah. Uh, okay. Excuse me. The so former you're... Pentagon official teaching at Stanford. You'll notice I was I was entirely silent. The truth is, we are all elites. No, I think by diversion oh, of all of this. Be... Yeah, but I'm a cop. Yeah. Exactly. That's not very. Right. Couldn't we all just agree among us that Rothkoff is the most elite? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Well, he was sipping Bellinis in Venice last time we recorded. Yeah, mm. whereas I'm always in a basement. That's not very elite. <laughs> yeah, but he came back from sipping the Bellinis in the basement and, you know, got back to the airport and hopped into his nice Porsche and drove off. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think he, he qualifies. Oh my God! Well, I'm so glad Only we gave. Only if interviewed the taxi driver at the airport on the way. To oh, find out what people cha-ching. were thinking. Ooh, man, that 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 felt a little close to home, but not my home. Somebody else's home. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna rule on this and determine that. Despite your attendance at a elite university, your elite upbringing, and all of your elite associations, Rosa, you're actually less elite than the two elitists that are Thank here. Thank you, David. I knew it. I knew it. Um, yeah, it, Georgetown professor just doesn't make the cut. Yeah, it doesn't. No, no, no. It's very, very, very blue collar. <laughs> I just wanted to give a you an opportunity. professor of the people. Of, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what they call me. They call me the people's law professor. Yeah, that's because you have a gun. Uh, <laughs> well, when I have a gun, they call me whatever I want them to. Yeah, there no, we go. Yeah, that's there what I go. like. That's what I. Li- that's that's exactly the kind of authority. This is how everything became war. Exactly. <laughs> that's what Al nice. Capone said. Yeah, you can nice. get a lot farther with a gun and a smile than just with a smile. But no, I I, I am I am a, a true member of the working class. Ask me anything. Okay, I will ask you something. I was trying to get to that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but 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 I wanted to pick up on Tom's point because I think it's a good one. I don't think it's one that we make here a lot. Um, the reality is that the elites, Republican elites, Democratic yeah, elites, elites everywhere, suck, and they have been sucking hard for a long time. And inequality is growing, and the parties seem to be dissociated from everything that's real. And the election of Trump has you know produced another you know, elite in populist clothing who's uh, trying to rip people off with health care, taxes, and all sorts of other kind of stuff. Is there any sign anywhere 
that 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 this reality is going to produce a healthy response as opposed to just unhealthy responses? Um, well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of signs, no, unfortunately. But I was thinking, however, that interestingly, this reminds me of the debate uh, that has you know raged. Um, for many decades, uh, it is now rather dormant because we have other things like nuclear war to worry about. But the debate has raged for decades uh, um, about human rights, which has been which should take priority, which is more important, uh, uh, civil and political rights, which is what the West has generally championed, um, rights relating to free expression, et cetera, uh, free elections, you name it, or, or social and economic rights, which is what countries such as Russia and China historically championed. And the argument made by countries like Russia and China back in the old days when they were actually communists um, was, you know, if you don't prioritize social and economic rights and ensure that people have a living wage and food and health care and so forth, then all of your civil and political rights just amount to the you know, freedom to sleep under your own bridge. Uh, and they're completely meaningless, whereas we here in the United States always sort of trumpeted the the cause of, of civil and political rights and said they're more important. And, and in a funny way, I think what, what we are now in this country hearing from uh, uh, many, many members of the U.S. population is screw your civil and political rights. They are of no use to me whatsoever because I am, you know, I, I, I'm living in a failing community. My friends and relatives can't get jobs. They're on disability. They're addicted to opiates. There are no jobs. And I feel like I've been forgotten. And I'm not interested in what you elites are interested in, that civil and political rights and not to speak of lattes and so forth are, are luxuries for people who aren't like us. And there, it is rather, rather ironic and interesting that Perhaps the, uh, you know, the elites here in the United States and indeed the health of the U.S. democratic system itself um, may be foundering precisely because here at home we have ignored social and economic rights in so many ways for so long. You know, I, I think that there are some, I mean, going back to your, your question of are there any signs of, of potential change, I think that we're, since Trump's election, we've been having kind of burblings um, in the mainstream media and amongst elites about, oh, gee, gosh, you know, are there some economic issues here that we kind of forgot about? Um, and that's, I suppose, on the Alcoholics Anonymous theory that first you have to acknowledge the problem before you can solve it. I guess that's a bright spot, but it hasn't amounted to a whole lot more than that. Corey, you go and teach and are affiliated with the university that is, you know, presents itself as the alternative to the old elites. You produce the new elites. You don't. You know. You're the anti-Harvard out there, um, and the question is, do you see any light on the tunnel at the end of the tunnel on this change? You know, Tom wrote a really wonderful book that if you haven't read, and many people have read it, it's done so well. But a really, really wonderful book about the fact that voices emerged that tipped the balance because in the in the pre-war period certainly there were those in England who sought capitulation and who who did not want to stand up to the dark forces um, and and the, and what I'm sort of searching for is are there leaders on the horizon are there voices on the horizon that give you hope within either party um, well, I'm not sure that the voices are emerging from the leadership of our political parties, because they too are the elites 
who have failed average Americans. Um, and I think the barbaric yop we heard over the roofs of our political world was just as much aimed at Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan and Hillary Clinton um, and Jeb Bush as it as it was at we hardworking stiffs at universities across this country. Um, but I, I am actually about two-thirds persuaded that Donald Trump's presidency is going to be good for democracy in America because it is, rem first of all, it's giving all of us an important civics education about the value of checks and balances, about co-equal branches of government, about the importance of a free, vibrant, and disrespectful press. Uh, you know, all of those good things that we very often take for granted in the United States, we are having tested by the Trump presidency. The second thing is that makes me hopeful is just how wonderful the diversity and breadth of antibodies that President Trump's um, behavior is mm. activating, not least uh, that of National Football League players. Uh, National Football League owners of uh, the American military voices who are coming out and saying, hey, guess what? I don't salute the flag. I salute the values that it embodies. So, you know, the diversity, we shouldn't assume that our military has a single point of view because it doesn't. It has 1.2 million different points of view. And I think there is a vibrancy that is being activated in response to the political testing of the limits of our system. I also think we see some of those voices internationally, right? Like when the French had a choice um, of lurching right or trusting an untested politician who was relentlessly moderate and inclusive, they chose that moderate voice. And I also think it's easy to overstate the difficulties that the German elections show us, because while it's true that 13% that of Germans voted for the alternative for Deutschland, uh, you know, the center's actually held amazingly well, given that Merkel's been in power for what, longer than a decade? The SPD was uh, devalued by not distinguishing itself in the coalition government instead of being active in opposition. Like, there are a lot of specific factors that tell me that the German election isn't nearly the disaster that a lot of news accounts are creating. I actually think the salvation of the liberal order isn't going to be from the emergence of a Martin Luther King so much as it is going to be from a whole bunch of Rosa Brookses. Um, David, could I jump in here with a question for Rosa? I mean, for, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Corey, um, I agree with much of what you say, especially about the antibodies and the education and, and civic affairs that Trump is giving us. That said, let me ask you to stop your unicorn for a second. What if we engage in a nuclear war sometime in the next 12 months with North Korea, will you still feel the same way about Trump? Uh, obviously, no. 
Um, if you had not been setting lobster traps on the coast of Maine and writing superbly good blog posts for best defense about taking a knee, what it means culturally in the army, and how we might benefit as a country from doing the same in this uh, febrile moment of our politics, you would know that the very last time we did a Deep State Radio podcast, we talked about this very subject, and Rosa and I were agreed that President Trump, as reckless as he is, um, is is probably all talk and no action. Probably. So, probably. Probably, and I think that's a good point. Let me go to David Sanger on this particular point, since things have changed since that last podcast. Um, and one of the things that changed was that Trump went out and said essentially um, that, you know, if the North Koreans kept on the way they were going, that, you know, they would be killed. I mean, he literally said, I'm going to, you know, he threatened totally the destroy their country. I think, well, he said, a, right. That was the first thing. And then subsequently, following a comment about the, by the foreign uh, minister about uh, a hydrogen bomb in the Pacific, he then essentially said, well, then we'll, you know, get rid of these guys. Uh, and the North Koreans have responded this week by saying that's a declaration of war. D does, and what's does, more that they would shoot down American military planes, even if they were in international waters. Right. And and this follows by, in a, by a matter of hours, us flying military planes nearby as a, as, a, as a show of force. So do you think this situation has materially changed? And, and, and what are your views on this question posed by Tom? So I think it is materially um, degraded significantly. Um, I was running in over the weekend to some people in the administration who keep making the same point, which is that the CIA psychological profiles of Kim Jong-un all suggest that you shouldn't make this personal because he's got a massive ego. And uh, if you get him into a position where he can't back down, you're likely to more likely to cause something to spin out of control than not. So they had all told the president that very carefully. And you saw what the result is. Uh, he made it intensely personal. Um, so Here's my biggest fear. It's not that we spill into a nuclear war. I, even I don't think that Donald Trump is going to go there. But I do see a much higher chance than I saw even two or three weeks ago of some kind of accident happening or some kind of military act happening that escalates rapidly. So think for a moment about this threat to shoot down military aircraft. The North Koreans actually did this once. It was in 1969. In April, it was in the middle of the Nixon administration. And they shot down an um, electronic surveillance plane that the Americans say was in international waters and the North Koreans say was in uh, their territory. But in any case, the wreckage was found 90 miles off. So that tells you it was probably international. And it killed all 31 people aboard. And... Uh, they were all mostly Navy. And interestingly, Richard Nixon, author of the Madman Theory, did not respond militarily. And the question I've been sort of asking myself since that moment when the North Koreans made the threat is, let's say something similar happened now, God forbid, and we had casualties and we had a shot down American aircraft. 
do we believe that the United States would sit back and, again, not respond militarily? I have my doubts. Tom Ricks, how do you feel about that? Um, I'm kind of with David on this, especially since the UN speech. I have begun to think we are actually have a good chance, around 50-50, I think, that we're sliding towards the conclusion of the Korean War. Play that out a little bit. Well, that um, the Korean War never really ended, and that's been the position of North Korea, and uh, it is on a war footing, and uh, it may figure that, you know, if you're going to go down, at least go hard. Um, let's roll the dice, because you never know how wars might play out, and that might be our best best chance. And uh, they no longer have a reliable United States that they can push against and which will respond with some maturity. So I think the calculations have changed in a way that I don't think people have recognized yet. Um, the calculations on both sides are changing, and they're changing in the direction of making a violent confrontation more likely. So, Corey, I, one of the conclusions that I draw from this is that Donald Trump's appearance at the UN General Assembly last week and the statements he has made since then have materially made the situation with North Korea worse. And that, in fact, the world's more dangerous as a consequence of them. That these are not just casual uh, tweets, this is not just a war of words, um, but we are now, you know, I mean, when Tom, who, I, you know, I can't think of a more respected military historian, looks at something like this and says 50-50 chance of war, it's really got to make you take off that tiara of optimism and hold your head in your hands, right? Well, I do agree that the president's uh, choices at the UN and since have been regrettable and have made the situation more brittle and more dangerous. Um, and I do agree that that it has increased the probability of a war with North Korea. I did a little research in my in my Twitter feed uh, right after the president's UN speech. I gave a one in six probability of war with North Korea, asked if anybody gave odds higher than that. And nobody in my timeline did. So, um, so I think, uh, I think I'm still at about, you know, somewhere in the 15% uh, place, but I do think- That's what kind of high, is, Corey. <laughs> one, five, 15? That's kind pretty of high. high. Not compared to Tom giving. Not compared 50, to Tom, 50. but in in terms of should we be sleeping and, and at I night? That's awfully high. I come come in somewhere in between those two. So yeah, so, um, too, so I think. So um, so, I I do think the president is aggravating a dangerous situation. I do think he ought to shut up because um, some of the things people in his administration are doing are actually really advantageous and positive. Not just the two rounds of unanimous UN Security Council resolutions, but a bilateral hand-holding with China that appears to produce their banking system honoring those sanctions and the secondary sanctions 
put in place by the U.S. unilaterally, which I don't think we'd seen the Chinese do before. I noticed that Spain and other countries are shipping North Korea's diplomats out of their country. I hadn't seen that happen before. So I do think the diplomatic tow rope is tightening in ways that are advantageous for coercing the North Koreans into better behavior. And I do think it's important to remember that the North Koreans are causing this problem fundamentally. Donald Trump is just aggravating it. Um, but but yeah, I come in about 15%, which for me is pretty high. And where were you when I was out on my lobster boat? <laughs> I was lower than that. So, okay. so I do agree it's worsened. Well, and if you look at it, you know, that means that here we have this array of people who study this for a living who now sort of say that the range of possibility of conflict with North Korea is somewhere between one in six and one in two. Um, and if you we look at the distribution, I think that the distribution is more towards the more likely end of that range than the less likely end of that range. I do think, Corey in this group sort of is holding the tiara of optimism. I do want to turn back to a point. Obviously, this makes everything turn on the military a little bit more than other kinds of circumstances. And Tom, you are a military historian, and and this is a very unusual moment for the military. You've got a president who's, you know, trying to wrap himself in the military and the flag, who doesn't seem to recognize the diversity that Corey is talking about. Paradoxically, you've got an, an assumption by many people, including in the elites, that it is military leaders who will stand up and not necessarily obey their boss uh, in order to counterbalance his worst tendencies. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, as a historian, do you see other periods in U.S. history where there was this heavy dependency on the military as a political counterbalance? Um, and that when we weren't actually at war? It's an odd question. Historically, of course, the military has been seen as, you know, aggressive and hawk-like, and it's the president who holds them back. You know, it's MacArthur who formally recommended to Truman that he be allowed to be used about three, three dozen nuclear weapons against North Korea and China to end the war in North Korea. It's uh, the Joint Chiefs who want to go nuclear for Dem Dien Phu to bail out the French. And it's the President and actually the Chief of Staff of the Army at the time, Matthew Ridgway, who come back vigorously and say no. In fact, Eisenhower says to the Joint Chiefs, you guys are recommending something that's going to get us into the war and we're going to end up putting in ground troops, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fritter away American power on the periphery of the communist empire. And that's Eisenhower's formal response to the Joint Chiefs over Vietnam. Um, so it's unusual. The answer is no. I don't think that the military would try to exercise some kind of veto power over a, over a response to North Korea that likely would include nuclear weapons, so small-yield tactical nukes, the B-61s, against North Korean missile sites and nuclear facilities and command and control bunkers. Uh, I, I think they I would, would say, um, if you want to go to war, this is the way to do it. Um, I would 
uh, just note, following uh, Tom's good point about where the military is today, that it's um, Defense Secretary Mattis who has been the most cautious in saying, look, if we did this, it would be a complete disaster. And it was uh, the um, National Security Advisor, General McMaster, H.R. Uh, McMaster, who stepped out and talked about preventive war uh, and was doing this much through the summer. He hasn't done it as much in recent days. And I just found that to be uh, somewhat jarring. And I thought that General McMaster was doing it fundamentally on instructions from the White House to try to make it look as if President Trump meant every word he said. And that General Mattis is usually in pretty close agreement with McMaster, was being, you know, rightly cautious here. But if we got into an escalating incident, if they did shoot something down, if they did open up and start shelling a South Korean uh, island or an American ship or something like that, and we got into escalation, I could well imagine uh, at least a temptation to make first nuclear use, even though it's been sort of unspoken American policy that we would not be the first to introduce a nuclear weapon into any conflict. And we have so many other options about how to go destroy a target like North Korea. I just so, think that we have a cloud of fallout coming into uh, California. Uh, I think it's gonna, it will change the equation for the American people. You mean because there was an atmospheric test? Yeah. Yeah. And I would go one beyond that and say that if we do see the North Koreans loading up for an atmospheric test, not an attack on the U.S., but an atmospheric test, I think there will be a great temptation in this administration to do a preemptive strike. Yeah, and if, if they see them loading up for an atmospheric test, I think we go way past a 50-50 up to like two to one chance. Yeah, at that moment, we take the tiara of optimism that Corey wears and we put it deep in that bunker so that it does not get melted down. Well, well you know, if you I... fall it out on Corey, it might glow in the dark. <laughs> it's well, neon anyway. I, you know, I know none of you guys, I know none of you guys take this too lightly and, and that, you know, we, we may joke about the West Coast of the United States and glowing in the dark and so forth. But there are almost no scenarios in which the United States does something like that, in which there is not a really grievous toll in South Korea. Am I correct? Yep, you are exactly yep. right. That has always been the constraint on the problem for the United States, which is that 20 million South Koreans and 130,000 American citizens live in artillery and rocket range of the inner Korean border, and the North Koreans are perfectly contented to fire on their kin. So, so Corey, when you heard General Mattis or Defense Secretary Mattis say last week, we have come up with some options to present to the president that would not involve losing South Korea or losing Seoul. And he meant, clearly meant military options. He said this in a gaggle with a group of reporters and then mm -hmm. was, of course, mysterious about what those were. What do you think he was talking about? Uh, so two things. One, I do think the good people in the Pentagon are working very hard on, on breakthrough military capabilities that might be able to change this dynamic. Um, and I'm not qualified to assess those or to say more about it. 
but I do know that they are really working hard on the edge of the envelope stuff. Um, I am. Can, can you be a little more specific? Can you be a little more specific? Like, just give the listener a hint as to what you mean by that. Are, are, are these cyber? Are they kinetic? Are they drones? Are they what's your what's Thank your you, favorite David. weapon? For- <laughs> I, um, so I think they're trying to work directed energy stuff. I think they're trying to work cyber stuff. I think, I think they're turning every possible key in the lock because this is such an unforgiving constraint. I am my set, but a second thing I think they're doing, and especially as David Sanger said, um, on the part of the national security advisor, they are trying to establish the credibility of a military option in order to deter further behavior by the North Koreans. I think HR, excuse me, uh, Lieutenant General McMaster is doing it most pointedly and least persuasively. I did notice a difference in the defense secretary's language. As David Sanger said, he is the one who has been most constrained and most kind of textbook Tom Schelling deterrence theory, which is to make a clear, credible threat that diminishes the value to North Korea of its nuclear weapons. That is, any attack on the United States or its allies will result in retaliation by the United States and the North Korean leadership will not remain in power as a result of that military action. I think that's been the right threat since 1953. I think it's credible. I think it it remains in place. But I noticed that uh, after the North Korean nuclear test, when the Secretary of Defense came out of the cabinet meeting in the White House and spoke on camera, uh, he did not the emphasis on retaliatory capability was gone. He said any threat to the United States or its allies would result in a military response. And I did not take that as intellectual sloppiness on the Secretary of Defense's part. I took that as a reinforcement of General McMaster's position and a more accurate, a more refined reading on where the president is himself. Right. And I think, by the way, that's an important point to make about Trump's UNGA speech, because in his UNGA speech, when he said that obliteration was a possibility with regard to North Korea, he did not say in response to an attack by North Korea. He said in response to a threat. And and so, again, it, 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 it underscores this point. But, Rosa, you know, I've seen some thoughtful people, people like Jeffrey Lewis, suggest that um, the... Uh, uh, North Koreans already feel like they've got a kind of nuclear insurance policy, and they've gotten a little bit more cover from things like Trump's statements. And so that regardless of, you know, our our predictions about war, over the next couple of weeks, it seems likely that the North Koreans are going to poke and poke and poke again because they think they can. I think that does seem likely, and I there I was I was thinking uh, as as the rest of you were talking, I was pondering China's role, uh, and I was and I was wondering about something, and I don't know if this is actually happening, but and, and it probably isn't. Um, but I was thinking, okay, what is the best hope for changing the behavior of North Koreans um, to get the? It's probably to get China to try to bring about regime change, which of course the Chinese don't want to do because they're terrified of having 
gazillions of North Korean refugees flowing across their borders. And I was thinking, here's another irony. This is my episode for various ironies. Um, if the United States didn't have a policy that at the moment is so incredibly hostile to refugees, uh, I would be, if I were, oh, say, a secretary of state who actually was uh, present and accounted for, I would be talking to the Chinese about prompt, to, to make assurances that in the event of a collapse of the North Korean regime and a massive refugee flow out of North Korea, that the United States of America will, will work actively and generously with China and all other states to manage that refugee flow in, up to and including taking a very large number of North Korean refugees ourselves if necessary. Uh, because, I, you know, I think that the, the route to a non-catastrophic solution runs through China and through offering some reassurances on that. And it's, it's a shame that we are so poorly placed to do so right now. Of course, continuing That's her such string. such a great proposal, Rosa. Well yeah, done. And, but continuing in her string of ironies, what have we just done today? Right. Well, you know. <laughs> we, just, we just added the North Koreans to the list of people who can't answer. Exactly. Right. Because we are all screwed up. Can, um, can I take but, Rosa's proposal and raise it one? David, sure, David. Can I ask David a question? Yes, why don't you ask David a question? And David, if you would come up with a brief answer, because we're coming close to the end of this episode. Okay. David Sanger, do you have any sense that we are, that right now the United States is doing cyber ops uh, that are effective inside North Korea? I have no evidence that we are doing any cyber ops that are effective within North Korea. Uh, North Korea is the place where there has been constant cyber operations back and forth in both directions for many years. We did something called Night Train to get up inside their intelligence services. They did the hack on Sony. We went after their missiles. They went after our banks. Um, but you would think that if there was something effective, we would see the evidence of it. And so far, at least I have not. Um, but I wanted to go one more thought with the Chinese, which is at some point, do you think this administration goes to the Chinese and say, look, your biggest fear is that the North Korean regime is going to collapse and the South Koreans are going to take over the territory and we're going to be up right behind them. We're telling you we're keeping our forces down south. We're telling you you can have the North Korean mm -hmm. natural resources if you want. Mm -hmm. But better yet, could you imagine a situation in which either by a wink or a nod or an outright statement, the U.S. government says to the Chinese, whatever you decide to go do with this regime, help yourself before we have to go do it uh, by such and such a date. And basically give the Chinese the option of taking care of the problem themselves. Yeah. Which I don't think I, the Chinese would bite at that, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if it happened. I don't think we are doing that, but I, I think that if we were sensible, we would be having those conversations. Well, you know, I, know, I know this from a war game the United States military did um, many years ago. Uh, what happens if North Korea collapses, the regime collapses, there's a massive humanitarian problem, peacekeepers are required, but there also is a rump North Korea that still wants to fight. Um, and there is a large chunk of the North Korean military in Northeast North Korea that declares itself free North Korea and says, we'll take you on. Jeez, what's that sound like? Huh? <laughs> we just had a war like that. 
Yep. Yeah, we, it seems to me we still do. But um, it, 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 it is a uh, chilling prospect. In fact, this entire episode uh, has been so full of chilling prospects that we may have to put the tiara of optimism on ice for a while um, because, you know, that, you know, if when you live in a situation in which it is more likely than not that there will be further provocations and we are already pretty close to a, a, a situation in which we, 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 we could be entering into war uh, and where the gold star in the military looks like it's going to go to the person who comes up with a way to attack an enemy without massive retaliation and that they're searching for some way that they can smack these guys um, and yet it's really unclear that that's a realistic possibility. Uh, these are dangerous times indeed. I don't think it's possible to have had a better discussion of the prospects associated with these times uh, than one has just had uh, or, or, or with uh, Tom and David and Rosa and Corey. Uh, and I thank each of you for joining in for this. And I thank all of you out there in Deep State Radio Land for listening to this. Uh, and I encourage you, since this will undoubtedly send you to the bottoms of your bunkers for the next few weeks, uh, to listen to the next episode of Deep State Radio from down in that bunker, uh, because we'll be coming uh, back to you soon with a continuation of quality thinking just like this. Please join us again, and thank you, guys. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. Thanks, guys. That was terrific. Sorry I have, can't stay around for the next. I do so but, uh, enjoy well, these conversations with you guys. Uh, David uh, Rothkopf, your concluding uh, comment really uh, chilled me about... Um, it made me think, what if somebody in the U.S. military, some Air Force guy especially, goes to President Trump and says, you know, I could take care of this problem pretty easily, much more easily than these ground pounders think. There is an air power solution here. That's always been the Air Force's line. It, it, it's a scary thought. but I, can, yeah, I, I just don't know how that handles the, uh, the artillery that Corey was talking about. But but the president the president has in the case of both Syria and Afghanistan entertained outside the box proposals from people like Eric Prince or and as you guys know I think David Sanger you may be my source on this that the cabinet meeting where they where they talked about Afghan strategy when Dunford was presenting the options, the president three times interrupted him and said, I had lunch with some sergeant last week who said nothing's changed in 15 years. So yep. the ability of people to catapult in and Trump to treat them as just as legitimate uh, policy options, that is the scenario Tom's chillingly raising.